Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. Good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Would ask you to uh, continue to pray for uh, the other pastor here. His name is Drew, uh, who has uh, pneumonia slash something really bad, nasty. Um, I'm not a physician, so that's my term for it, but... uh, Anyway, uh, he's been down uh, for the count for the better part of a week, uh, and so would ask you to pray for him uh, for a speedy recovery and uh, getting rest. I thought about trying to maybe do a FaceTime with him um, to where you know he could see all of you and wave, and, and I thought, eh, it's a little hokey, so we're not going to do that. Um, but it's the thought that counts, as we like to say. Um, we're in the middle of a series on the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, as you could see there, uh, this is yet another passage where uh, we kind of get hit with a number of things. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how the Apostle Paul is challenging the church in Corinth and thus us to speak the truth in love and resolve conflict in a way that reflects the gospel, to be willing to lose and be defrauded, to judge from a posture of humility, to not sacrifice truth for the sake of a relationship or vice versa. So much of his arguments to the church at Corinth come back to chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's going to come back into play today with this passage. Something about gospel reality that's not at the center of their reality, and so it's created division and conflict. 
But even beyond that, it's allowed their culture to dictate how to handle things. They have allowed their culture to dictate how to handle things, rather than being informed by the gospel. And so again this morning, we're going to look at another way in which they have become more enculturated than affected by uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We looked at the first half of chapter 6 last week, and the second half this week, Uh, And I just wanted to throw this in because I thought it was kind of funny. One of the commentators that I read, one of the first commentaries I opened up, read this week uh, as I was trying to think about this and get my mind around it. And these are some of the first words I read. Uh, Quote, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20 is widely acknowledged to be one of the most difficult passages in Paul's letters. Commentators have described the unit as disjointed, obscure, unfinished, or even incoherent. And then I thought, boy, Drew planned that just right. Sick. Oh, you're up, by the way, anyway. Really. That's just the kind of description you want to read about the passage to which you've been assigned. It's very encouraging. It's a real confidence booster, you know. This is a guy with a Ph.D. who probably dreams in the Greek language. And he is saying, this is unfinished, disjointed, obscure, right? So I'm praying that the sermon will not be disjointed, obscure, unfinished, or incoherent, okay? Um, But here's the thing. Whether it's taking disputes to a pagan court or fulfilling one's sexual drives outside of marriage, both activities for the apostle, right, and what he's going to teach us, uh, what he taught us last week, what he's going to teach us today, both of these things destroy Christian witness and they violate Christian community. They're detrimental on both an individual and a corporate basis. Paul's continuing concern seems to be that the Corinthian church is more defined by their culture than by their union with Christ. So today, you'll notice we read verses 9 to 20, and my focus is really going to be on 12 to 20. But I'd certainly be remiss if I didn't speak to the first three verses. In fact, we're going to come back to verse 11 specifically toward the end. Now, last week, Drew finished at verse 8, and he talked about conflict resolution. Do we believe that the rule of heaven is mediated through the church here on earth? And what he does is he builds on the first eight verses, beginning in verse 9, with another one of these questions, or another one of these beginnings to the statement, Do you not know? Settling disputes unjustly, defrauding one another, those are forms of wrongdoing. They're unrighteous. They're evil. And people whose lives are characterized by that sort of behavior will not inherit the kingdom. But he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to describe more sins that if this is the sort of behavior that characterizes your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me read again. Do not be deceived. This is verse 9. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you think you've gotten your pet sin out here and he didn't include you, come see me afterward. I bet I can find it for you. Okay? These verses really form a bridge between the first half of the chapter and the second. Now, I want to give you a word about the list, a few words about the list. Given our cultural moment and the popularity and, and, and the way that the press uh, and, 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 the, and how public the gay movement is within the United States, it's incumbent upon me to highlight the fact 
that the Bible does describe homosexuality as a sin. The church should not be ashamed of calling it a sin, no more than we're ashamed of calling adultery a sin. But at the same time, I don't want you to miss the fact that homosexuality is in a list of sins, right? The church has failed to make gay people feel welcome because we've isolated it from the list. We've put it in a special category of sinful behavior. Because here's the thing, we welcome idolaters, adulterers, greedy people, and those with hidden addictions to pornography every week. But if you're gay and we find out, woe be unto you. So I want to caution us in that respect, that as the church... This is one sin in a list of sins, and in that sense, it is no different from any of the others. And so we must be calling everyone to repentance and faith, and we must be warmly welcoming everyone, no matter what their pet sin is, if you will. Now, the apostle chooses to hone in on the problem of sexual immorality in the remaining verses, so I want you to look at your outline there, and clearly you can see if you've looked at it prior to now, Uh, that that's kind of where we're going to focus. And we're going to look under these three headings. First, uh, sexuality in our culture. Okay, the idea of freedom in the body and how how did the Corinthians' understanding of freedom affect their behavior? How does it affect ours? Second, biblical sexuality, covenant breaking and covenant keeping. And then thirdly, why is remembering our identity? And I give you some of the words that this passage gives us to remember our identity. Why is that the power for fleeing sexual immorality? Okay? Parents, I want to say, as we get started on this, please follow up with your children, particularly teenagers, middle schoolers who are in here. Please follow up with your children on this subject, because much of the thinking I'm wanting to address is prevalent even in the church. Okay? Uh, Which speaks to how enculturated we are uh, as, um, as people. So first, sexuality in our culture, freedom in the body. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14 here, okay? And I want to give you some background uh, that hopefully will help us make sense out of these verses. It seems there were certain slogans in the church that the Corinthians were throwing out at Paul to justify their immoral behavior. And given the worldview of the ancient world, it seems clear the slogans were not completely devoid of cultural baggage. They, they had some cultural trappings that were attached to them. Verse 12's argument forms a basis for what follows. And you can see there, in your, either in your worship folder, if you're looking in the, the Bible you brought from home, or the Pew Bible, there are quotes around certain phrases within these verses. Okay, And most scholars believe that even though those quotes aren't in the original text itself that Paul wrote, Paul is referring to some slogan. So they've put those in quotes to kind of help us make sense out of what he's doing here. Bringing up a slogan or a saying from popular culture and then debunking it or reminding the Corinthians to uh, check themselves as they walk around saying this, okay? If I'm permitted to do anything I want, the argument goes then I can follow my passions, my appetites, my heart, as we say today, wherever they may lead. So all things are lawful for me, they were saying to Paul, verse 12. Paul says, but not all things are helpful, right? All things are lawful for me, or all things are permitted for me. 
But he says, I will not be dominated or enslaved or overcome by anything. The ancient world regularly linked the appetite or desire for food and the appetite or desire for sex. And so as a general rule, okay, when you feel like eating, you eat, right? Well, sexual activity is no different uh, in, in their mindset. He goes on in verse 13 and suggests that the Corinthian Christians, like their culture, believed that just as food is meant for the stomach and vice versa, so also sexual activity is meant for the body and the body for sexual activity. Look at verse 13, okay? Here's another slogan or statement. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The stomach and the body are useless. So went the worldview, the uh, or yeah, the worldview of the the ancient world, and in particular in Corinth, the stomach and the body are useless unless we engage in these two activities. And because food and sex are primarily part of the material world, and they're going to be destroyed anyway, our bodies will be destroyed, food will be destroyed. What we do with them has no abiding significance and no moral consequence. Now, what's interesting is how similar our culture is to that of the Corinthians. But we have a strange mix of this view of sex as a natural appetite. Thus, we have pornography and we have a a view of casual premarital sex that's very, very normal and common and accepted in our our society. But that's mixed with the view of sex as a way of self-expression, a way to be yourself or find yourself. And so we have very hypersexualized marketing, right? Selling it as a commodity to be consumed or something to be bought or sex as entertainment or amusement, right? Uh, now, to help us understand how strange the first view is, that is, sex as a natural appetite, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis tells us to imagine going to another planet where people pay to see a person sit on a stage and eat a pork chop. Yes, we laugh, right? He says, he says, it's this very elaborate thing, but imagine you walk into this theater and, and, and there's, a, there's a, a, a little sheet over this plate and there's lots of finery on the table and it's all very fancy and someone walks up and they proceed to lift the sheet up off the plate very slowly and everybody's, oh, and it's a pork chop. And we all sit there and watch this person eat and we're just, Right? Or imagine a planet where people walk around looking lustfully at pictures of food in magazines. Now, you're laughing because that seems weird and creepy, right? Yes, it does. But that's exactly what our culture has done with sex, right? The appetite for sex is no different than that of food. We do live on a planet where people pay to see a person sit on a stage or act in a movie and make that a regular part of the uh, plot, if you will. And of course, I don't need to tell you or name the magazines that we pay for to look look lustfully at pictures of not food, uh, but other things. But the other predominant view in our culture says this, if emotional happiness or fulfillment exists between two consenting adults, then there's no marriage needed 
Sex is allowed. It's even encouraged, right? However, if emotional fulfillment lessens or the feelings of love die, we don't see any issues with walking away from the relationship or even a marriage. We're free to go find another mate. Now, Paul's warning for us is that, and for the Corinthians is that there is an ever-present danger that we bring ourselves into bondage to the very things we do by way of asserting our freedom, or for them, asserting our, their Christian freedom. He's highlighting a misapplication of freedom. The Corinthians weren't under the impression that the body comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's message to them is this, you are not your own. Your desires own you. You certainly aren't free. You are enslaved by your desires. If you take this everything is permitted to me approach to life, freedom doesn't mean that life can be lived on your own terms with no consequences. He says your body is a gift and how you behave with it reveals the extent to which you understand that reality. And so in challenging their viewpoint, Paul brings out the goodness of the body and God's creating of it to bear upon the Corinthians' misapplication of freedom. He says, uh, verse 13 the the last part there, the body is not designed for sexual immorality, but for the Lord himself. And the Lord designed for the body. He created it. And he goes on to give a theological basis for why sexual immorality is not the body's purpose. So that's the problem, okay? Now, secondly, the design What's the design of biblical sexuality? What is Paul's appeal as he calls the church to practice it? Well, move down to verses 15, 16, and 17. Both of these begin with Paul asking the church, Do you not know? Do you not know? And there's something like six or eight times in the matter of about a chapter and a half where Paul keeps asking them, Do you not know? Do you not know? Another way of saying it is, surely you know, don't you? Surely you know. There's some sense in which he's writing to them, you get the sense that they've forgotten something. There's a reality that has changed for them because of their union to Jesus, and yet that union, that different identity has not caught on. It's not foundational. It's not the centerpiece of their life. And so he keeps calling them back to that and using different arguments to say, surely you know, don't you? Right? This theme of union underscores both verses 15 and 16. And so it's where I'm going to park for a few minutes, right? One commentator paraphrases verse 15 like this. Shall I then tear from Christ his limbs and organs and make them the limbs and organs of a prostitute? And if you're here and you are a Christian, let me remind you, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving and resting on him alone for salvation, as he's offered in the gospel, your identity and your position change. You are now in him. You're part of him. You're connected to him. You're tied to him. You're chained to him. You're yoked to him. And if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you're wondering, what does Christianity mean? Maybe you're investigating. It is about being dead and being made alive through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, resulting in a new identity. Remember the assurance of pardon. Paul says, uh, 
you can look at it there in your worship folder or just listen. This is Colossians 3, verse 3. He says, uh, excuse me, let me start in verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for or because you have died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You have a different position. And if that is true, the apostle says it's utterly inconceivable that you would take a part of Jesus and then make it a part of a prostitute. You, you, you can't do that. It's like apples and oranges. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? They are a part of him. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Look at verse 16. Not only that, he again appeals to union by quoting Genesis 2, verse 24, highlighting, again, the design of God, the way God has made things to work. He says, A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Paul just uses or quotes the last last bit there. Our call to worship in Deuteronomy chapter 10 has a very similar feel. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and you shall hold fast to him. The word meaning joined in Greek means to cement or fasten together. There's a permanence associated with it. And his point is this. If you are cemented or fastened to Christ, you can't be cemented to a prostitute and think everything is going to be okay. Why? Because becoming one flesh refers to a personal union of a man with a woman as well as a woman with a man at all levels of their life. To become one flesh means to become a new person. Another commentator said, said it this way, Paul here insists that becoming one flesh through a sexual union is an act which engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mo- mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. So, sex with a prostitute is wrong because every sexual union is supposed to reflect an absolute and complete covenant unity, which doesn't exist with a prostitute by definition. Make sense? There must be no physical union unless there is also every other kind of union, legal, economic, personal, emotional, spiritual. There must not be one union without all the rest. And so if the purpose of sex is self-giving and complete covenant unity according to the Bible, then any time you aren't obligated to a complete giving of self, in other words, sex with a prostitute or anyone else to whom you aren't married, then sex is wrong. I'm sorry to sound so black and white and mean this morning, like your, you know, ornery grandfather. I've struggled with this this week. It's been very, I mean, it's just, it's hard, some of the things that were, you know, and this is only chapter six. We've got a long way to go. So if you're uncomfortable this morning, it's going to be uncomfortable till June. Be a lot of uncomfortableness. Drew and I talk about this regularly. Gosh, did you see what he said there? Oh my goodness, how are we going to say that, right? Well, here it is. And I want to park here for a few minutes because we need to further explore the Bible's view of sexuality because it's so utterly countercultural. 
and we are so enculturated. Paul's comments are being driven by the view that the design of God results in wholeness and flourishing. It's the way life's supposed to work. And when you break the design, when you don't follow the design, the culture's design will result in destruction and disintegration. The biblical view of sexuality is that sex is more than a physical act of two consenting human beings. In fact, the Bible isn't even focused on love primarily. Biblical sexuality is about a union. It's about a oneness. It's about a joining together that mirrors the joining together of Jesus Christ with his people. This idea of joining together doesn't exist on its own. It happens in the context of a covenant. Sex creates deep intimacy, oneness, communion between two people. And in the Bible, oneness is not simply a matter of emotion, but is always the creation of a covenant. The main condition of marriage The only context in which sex is discussed in the Bible is a binding covenant. You will never see in the Bible the the, uh, topic of sex or the beauty of sex or the joy of sex discussed or described outside of the context of a man and his wife. Never. It's a picture of self-giving, not self-fulfillment. Why? Because that's exactly how God behaves. We see God relating to his people throughout the scriptures in this way. When he enters a relationship with someone, he's not so unrealistic as to think that emotion can serve as the basis for it, right? He knows that human emotions come and go and that there's, need, there's a need to be something binding to provide consistency and endurance. And so God requires a binding public legal covenant to provide the infrastructure for intimacy. You read a little bit of it in the call to worship. That is what the book of Deuteronomy is. It is a retelling, a rehashing by Moses to the people of the legal uh, basis, the public, the binding covenant that God has entered into with his people. Because you see, it is far easier to be vulnerable to someone who's bound themselves to you with a vow to be exclusively faithful to you than to someone who's under no obligation to stay with you for more than one night. Thus, God demands covenants. Not only does he initiate them, but he calls his people to remember them. So, for example, we reread the covenant terms. We've done that this morning. We recall the history of his acts of grace. We do that every week when we're together. And we recommit ourselves through a covenant renewal ceremony, which we're going to do here in just a few minutes at the Lord's table. Now, teenagers in in particular, I I want you to hear me. And all these words I'm about to say are in bold in my notes because, uh, gosh, I just want you to hear them. Because this is probably the most countercultural thing I'm going to say all day. Sex only works in the fullest way God intended for one man and one woman within the exclusive, permanent, legal commitment of marriage. That's the only way it works in the way God intended for it to work. Sex is a God-invented way to say to another person, listen, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. And that can't be said outside the permanent, exclusive, covenantal commitment of marriage. Our culture does not believe that. And they are out to get you in particular now at your age to not believe it. 
And if they can get you to believe it, to not believe it, believe something else, they've got you. Primarily, he, the he I'll talk about in just a second, has got you. Now, the illustration Paul's using for sexual immorality is sex with a prostitute. And this must have been an activity the Corinthian Christians were engaged in. And to, 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 because uh, they knew Paul was going to have a problem with it, duh. They say to him, well, all things are permitted to me, right? Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, okay? So he's addressing that, and then he gets into underneath that in 15, 16, and 17, the, the, kind of the foundational basis for why that's a problem. But the idea of sexual immorality in the Bible is broader than that. In fact, anywhere you see it mentioned, it may be translated a couple of different ways. In fact, the word translated in verse 18, look up there in verse 18, after he gives this basis, he says, flee from sexual immorality. The word in Greek is porneia, which should sound familiar to all of us because it's the word that we get our English word pornography from. So in 2013 American English, verse 18 says, run away from pornography as fast as you possibly can. Or another way, run away from any sexual relationships outside the covenant of marriage as fast as you possibly can. Why? Because the general sense in the Greek of the word porneia is sex with anyone who is not your spouse. Now listen, again, teenagers... Satan is absolutely over the moon. That's a phrase to mean he's rejoicing. He's really excited over the success and popularity all over the world of the multi-billion dollar organization committed to celebrate and condone pornea. That is, any sex other than sex with your own spouse. It promotes the worldview that I mentioned earlier. A cross between a natural appetite for sex like food, so don't worry about it. When you're hungry, you eat. When you want to have sex, you go have sex. It combines that with this romanticist self-expression that's founded on my emotional fulfillment. Not so much yours, though. Right? As long as you meet my needs. Satan loves that sex is marketed, consumed, it's used as entertainment because it tears it apart from its original design and it disintegrates and destroys people. And he loves that. Now, males, married or single, young guys, older guys, let me just warn you again, the internet, television, it's dangerous. You need friends. You need a community. You need an accountability partner. And these days, you need somebody to check the clicks. Uh, Although, nowadays, we don't even need the clicks anymore. We need to check your taps. Because everybody's using something that you just tap. You don't even use a mouse anymore. But everywhere, porneia is celebrated. Females, married, single. Let me just warn you, some of the so-called romantic literature that's out there. Okay? Soap operas, which rejoice. I mean, you know, you you break up with this person, you go over, there's lots of deceit and betrayal and whatever, but... What's the kind of the happy moments in soap operas? Ah, uh, when the two star-crossed lovers finally meet, they're never married. But they play this nice soft music and everybody's, oh, what a wonderful thing, right? 
But even a hyperattentive focus on your body and your appearance, again, all of these things can lead you, just be careful, they can lead you towards celebrating or condoning sex outside of the exclusivity of marriage. It's specific for males and females. There's different spots in our culture in which you need to see and flee from the coming, uh, the, the temptation to, to celebrate and condone this porneia. And yet, uh, Paul's very clear, flee, run away. But to where? Well, to the identity that Paul says, at least for the Corinthians, and for you, if your hope and your faith are in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the identity that God has changed you. You belong to him. Your position is in him. So why is remembering our identity the power for fleeing sexual immorality? Look there at the last point in the outline. The answer is because in our identity, we come to see and experience the self-giving of God to us through a covenant bond that was sealed in blood. If God has given himself to us unconditionally in Christ, securing us by swearing his love for us, then we can conduct our relationships and rejoice in the purpose of sex within the context of marriage. Sexual immorality is no longer attractive because you see how life doesn't work and it tears life apart when relationships are not founded on covenant fidelity. We've talked about this in the past at Redeemer in the context of friendships and being friends with someone for their sake, not for your sake. Not what can I get out of this relationship, but what can I give to you in this relationship. And so when we come to know the love of God for us in Jesus, our motivation in any relationship becomes self-giving, not self-fulfillment. Look at verse 11, and then we're going to kind of jump down to the end of the passage. Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then verse 19, again, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, because you were bought for a price. These are the words... These are the words that result from God's self-giving in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. In fact, his entire life leading up to the cross. Washed, sanctified, justified. They're past tense verbs. They're passive verbs. Meaning they describe something that was done to you or for you. They describe God's working on our behalf to bring salvation. As he says in verse 11, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. You see, God's joining himself to us was not a one-night stand. It was a covenant bond sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. His pledging himself to us was costly, and sexual immorality is none of those. Sexual immorality is temporary. It's not costly. It's fast, done, move on. God does not deal with his people in that fashion. 
God does not enter into you in the person of the Holy Spirit without the self-giving of his Son. And you do not get the Spirit entering into you without committing your faith, putting your trust into the self-giving work of the Son on your behalf. It's marvelous news that God says to or that Paul says to us, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So in the first part of the passage, he's saying, you are not your own, your desires own you. But now, the power, the power in remembering our identity and fleeing from sexual immorality is to recall these words, you are not your own, Jesus owns you. He owns your body, he owns your soul, he owns your spirit, he owns your mind, he owns all of it. So what you do with it is not for you to decide, it's for him to tell you what to do with it. You don't get to choose that if you are in Christ. He says the Holy Spirit has entered into you. God has entered into you, but it was for a price. And the price was the life of his son. And so as we come to this table, remembering we are participating in a covenant renewal ceremony, as we see the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed, his selfless sacrifice is reenacted before our eyes. That's what we do. That's what happens when we break that bread in front of you. That's why we don't do it down here under the table and lift it up. We do it in front of you so that you can see it, right? And then as we receive and eat these elements, our giving of ourself to him is reenacted. We take him into us. It points us to our union, our connection to him. And just like the, the sexual union, two becoming one flesh, you and Jesus, two separate people becoming one through the sacrament of Holy Communion. He comes and he feeds us. And because of Jesus, as Paul says again in the assurance of pardon, the Christian's life is now hidden with Christ in God. And that is good news because that provides us a security, a respite, a place that we can flee, as Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it as fast as you possibly can, not to some other idol or thing, but into your identity, your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given himself to have you. He calls us to give ourselves Uh, to have him and for the sake of others. So let's pray that he would do that in us uh, as we prepare to come to the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you bought us. Uh, We did not have to purchase uh, the salvation that you won for us ourselves. It did not cost us anything, and yet it cost you your life. And so we pray that as the Apostle Paul says here, you would remind us, you would engage our hearts that we have been washed, sanctified, justified, bought for a price. That we are costly to love. 
And as that more and more becomes a part of our heart, as it becomes foundational to the reality of our lives, that there wouldn't be any relationship or anyone around us that we weren't able to go and pursue, no matter how costly they were to love, because we know how costly we have been to love. Help us to not be affected by and influenced by our culture who doesn't, doesn't celebrate the, the permanence of the covenant of marriage. Help us to, to call attention to that, to celebrate it and rejoice in it. Uh, and in doing so, might they see, might the world see and know and come to believe in you, Lord Jesus, and have life, life abundant. Come and do this work, we pray, in your name and for your sake. Amen. Uh, Amen. A reflection on that of how much he loves us does not produce a, well, I can go do whatever I want kind of an attitude. Uh, Produces a grateful heart that then moves out to imitate the way that he loves us uh, in the way that we love other people. So, that is the kind of work he's calling us to do. This benediction gives you another piece of fuel for the fire of going to get that work done. It is kindling, if you will, to kind of boost you as you go from this place. So receive the benediction now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.